views expressed on this program are those of the hosts, guests, and callers, and are not necessarily those of this station, its management, or other advertisers. You're listening to Transformation Talk Radio. Are you ready to stop stress, anxiety, and low self-esteem from running your life? Join award-winning author Dr. Friedemann Schaub from Empowerment Radio as he addresses some of the most prevailing challenges in our day-to-day lives. Find out how you can use the power of your mind to overcome self-sabotaging patterns and build a solid foundation of confidence and self-respect. Learn cutting-edge tools and approach every day with great ease, joy, and purpose. This is the time to empower yourself. Now, here's your host, Dr. Friedemann Schaub. Welcome to Empowerment Radio. I'm your host, Dr. Friedman, and as always on Empowerment Radio, we are addressing the challenges in life. Those things, those aspects that may be hard for us to deal with, but ultimately are the most important and the most rewarding to focus on and spend some time with. And today, I want to talk about, with my very special guest, about the heart. Now, not the the physical heart, but the heart that is the seed of our emotions, the heart that is carrying the past within it, the heart where we can also find so much of our truth, and the heart that may have been so hurt and may have dealt with so much trauma that we rather keep it closed and maybe protect it and feel like there is too much baggage, there's too much woundedness to really spend much time with it. So when you are really tuning into your heart, how is the status of your heart? Do you spend a lot of time just thinking about it, connecting to it? Do you know that there may be still some loss buried in the past that you never really had a chance to deal with? Do you feel that since that loss or since that trauma, you go through life with the belief that you don't really matter, your words don't matter, that you're not safe or that you are powerless? And all of those things keep you somewhat in a place where you live in survival mode and you may not really have had a chance to fully blossom into what you're here to be? And how can you overcome this? How can we heal the broken heart? How can we mend the wounds of the past? And how can we see the vulnerability that made us feel so overwhelmed by whatever happened to us? How can we see this as a gift? How can we see this as a power? And how can our vulnerability help us on our journey through this life moving forward? All of those things. I am happy to discuss with my special guest, Pilar Jennings, Dr. Pilar Jennings, who is a psychoanalyst, (laughs) psychotherapist, psychoanalyst, and has done something very fascinating. She has been merging Buddhism and psychotherapy into a form of healing that is incredibly powerful because there is something about connecting the healing process with spirituality that she found and also I found in my practice 
just something that brings the whole healing into an aspect of wholeness that is not possible if we are only focusing on, let's say, the mind or our thoughts or anything like that. But I want to hear from the person who wrote a book about it, which is called To Heal a Wounded Heart, The Transformative Power of Buddhism and Psychotherapy in Action. So welcome, Pilar, to the Empowerment Radio Show today. Thank you very much. It's good to be here with you. Well, let me start with asking you if you are a Buddhist. I am. I've been practicing Buddhism since I was a child. My mother took me to my first meditation class when I was 10 years old. Uh, and I certainly did not define as a Buddhist at that time or really until I was maybe in my, my mid-20s. But the first exposure was so compelling for me. I, I was uh, not unlike many kids, shy, a little introverted, uh, easily overstimulated. So to be in a, in a room where uh, I was with people, but things were quiet and peaceful and contained was so compelling for me that it, it made quite an impression. So I... I I've been practicing um, more actively since I was in my early 20s. Now, when you think about Buddhism, I think uh, these days, especially, Buddhism becomes quite popular amongst mm -hmm. many. And uh, it's seen as the non-religious path to spirituality. But to be honest, a lot of people may not still know really what Buddhism is. So do you have like a gist of your personal view on Buddhism. What would you say are a few of the things that are important to know about Buddhism in regards to its philosophy? Sure. Well, the teachings of, of the Buddha Dharma are, of course, extensive, as they are in all the great religious traditions. And you're exactly right. In, in the West, many people understand Buddhism to be more of a philosophy or a spiritual path rather than a religion, although it, it is, uh, it is a, a religion insofar as it has an originator and an original community and the rituals and, and the beliefs, even though there are scholars who argue against the notion of beliefs in Buddhism. And I'm actually in a, a lineage in the Tibetan Buddhist tradition that is very religious in nature. The teachers mm -hmm. are, are monastics. Uh, there are lots of rituals. It's, it's sometimes referred to as the smells and bells tradition. So you, you really do feel that you've entered into a religious process and community. But to your, your question, if I had to sum up the, the so-called 84,000 teachings of the historical Buddha, I would say the idea is to uh, cultivate a very deep and genuine curiosity about reality. The reality of who we are, the reality of how the mind operates, the reality of whatever it is we happen to be dealing with. Mm -hmm. But without all of the customary reactions of wanting things to be pleasurable and pushing away things that feel difficult or challenging or, or frightening so that we can be a little bit more on board with life, a little bit more on board or aligned with the truth of, as you were saying in your introduction, what, what we're carrying inside us. 
So Buddhism doesn't teach to avoid pain or suffering or avoid fears, anxieties, or any of those emotions that we deem negative. That's exactly right. So the the original Buddha, who was a man, just a, a regular person, he, he had a lot of privilege, but he wasn't thought to be endowed with any miraculous capacities. He was just a, a guy who got deeply curious about his own psyche. And in his first teachings, he talked about what are known as the Four Noble Truths. And the first noble truth is the truth of suffering. And one of the things that I've learned from my my teachers is there really is nobility in staying very curious about how we suffer and why. Not to get too attached or, or obsessional about it, which can happen, but to really try to understand the causes of our suffering and with the intention of, of feeling better, of feeling freed up, again, more, more alive, more capable, uh, and, and more able to, to deal with reality with a sense of, of equanimity. Now, how does that not collide with psychotherapy, which is all about, let's just remove the suffering from a person's psyche and, uh, and try to make them feel better? Does that you know, have a conflict of interest in that regard? Or do you feel in your practice that is actually obviously, you know, a very potent addition to your psychological work? I would suggest that this is actually a, a real common ground between the traditions, even though there are enormous differences. In both Buddhism and psychotherapy, the, the goal, if if you want to phrase it that way, or the intention is, is to help people feel unburdened by their suffering. Mm -hmm. to, to, to both feel into it directly, which is the hard part, and understand it so that there's an opportunity to have a new experience, a new outcome. Mm -hmm. and, and it's true, you're, you're pointing to a difference in the traditions that Freud, who was the founder of psychoanalysis, felt that if you dig deep down into the mind, you find a lot of conflict. Whereas the Buddha said, if you do that, that digging, if you plumb the depths, what you find underneath all of the storminess and the, the struggles and that, the difficult affect is, is a place of clarity, of spaciousness. And, and so there are some, some different understandings around what you find in that process of trying to be unburdened. But in both traditions, the idea is we, we can feel better. We just need to do the work and have someone help us do that work. Now, would you say that Buddhism assumes that there is nothing broken about us and that there is at the core just a lot of, you know, us, and that has this wholeness, the integration of the darkness and the light, the yin and the yang, whatever we want to call it. Is there a feeling of ultimately acceptance and not getting too attached to a certain dysfunction? And is that in psychotherapy, not a little bit the other way around, where we often get more diagnosed as there is something wrong? And so is there is there maybe something what Buddhism is like a healing bomb because it gives you a sense of, no, there is actually nothing wrong and there is a wound to heal. 
Yes, you articulate that perfectly. The, the, the Buddha and the many teachers, right? the Buddha was, again, a, a person who was curious about himself and, and began teaching at the request of others. Uh, and since then, there have been lots of extraordinary teachers. And they all will basically say, it's true, most people have a lot of problems. <laughs> most people have the imprinting powerfully from their own life in terms of how they were treated and the environment they were born into and the family they were raised in. But that fundamentally, we all have within us these extraordinary resources of wellness, of healing. It really is just a matter of, of accessing those resources and that those resources are um, high functioning, you say whole, and I would say they're they're ready, right? They're ready to offer what's needed to heal, to be unburdened. Whereas in in the certainly the psychoanalytic tradition, you're right. There's there's been a lot of temptation to pathologize, to diagnose, and I would suggest, and I think many of my my colleagues would agree, to get a little bit too fixated on the pathology and the, the suffering, and to, to be less curious about the unclaimed gifts and internal resources. Although certainly in the Jungian tradition uh, and other traditions, there's real appreciation for uh, the gifts that one can find in the therapeutic process. Mm. So for you, in your book, you write a story about a patient, a young patient that uh, you accompanied for a year or longer. And I think it was a patient who went through a lot of trauma in her childhood and she stopped talking at some point. And what made you bring in your Buddhist friends to just try to maybe open her up? Yeah, it's it's a question that I've I've considered quite a bit, uh, and and I will say that the decision that I made in that treatment <clears throat> was not a decision I had ever made before or since. So it, it was an unusual way that I was uh, pretty obviously bringing Buddhism into the psychotherapeutic process. But I did make that decision very, very consciously, and after a lot of consultation with, with a supervisor, um, in part because my Buddhist teacher, Lama Pema Wangduk, was such a beacon of possibility and hope and recovery and resilience to so many people, and he survived an extremely traumatic childhood with many, many shocking losses Uh, many separations from loved ones, a lot of upheaval. And I felt for, for this child that it might be deeply reassuring to meet an adult who, like her, had suffered in, a, in an extreme way and still gone on to live a meaningful life mm -hmm. and a, a fulfilling life. Well, we'll talk more about this encounter of two, no, three completely different uh, ways of life and different people and how that all created such a wonderful environment for healing and also for healing of future of your clients and patients because what you learned in that process, I can imagine, also made a difference then in the future. So stay tuned. We will be 
right back. Welcome back to Empowerment Radio. I'm here with my guest, Dr. Pilar Jennings, and we are talking about her book, the To Heal a Wounded Heart, and the merging of Buddhism and psychotherapy and uh, how all that she is teaching and helping her clients with can also help you. If you are struggling with a wounded heart, if you feel that whatever happened in your past, your childhood, or maybe more recent past, that still burdens you, that still feels like an open wound that hasn't been healed, how her teachings can help you to overcome those wounds and come back to a sense of wholeness. Now, we talked before that uh, you had this uh, young patient that you were uh, treating for over a year and you brought your Buddhist friend, Lama Pema, into the mix. Now, how did that go in regards to how he brought in Buddhist teachings and introduced them to a child who probably had no idea of who this man in his robes is all about. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I think it, um, it it certainly was a new experience. And I will say one of the reasons why I felt um, pretty confident that, that it would be tolerable is that Lama Pema is such a gentle person. Uh, like many monastics, he has a, he has a very humble uh, presence. He's also a very petite person, so almost has a childlike quality uh -huh. himself. Uh -huh. And he's, he's extremely down to earth. He's extremely unaffected. And in that way, has some of the best qualities of a child. Mm. And so what happened was he, he simply showed up and, and met her and, and me from that child's position and wasn't trying to teach the Dharma. He was just talking in a very simple way about his own experience and asking simple questions about hers and, and about mine too, right? just to cultivate a feeling of mutuality. Um, but I, I think, I hope, he was expressing the teachings just through his way of being, mm. right? through his curiosity. And also through his, his sense that there's absolutely nothing shameful about suffering. It is part of the human condition. Mm -hmm. We all suffer. Most of us suffer quite a bit and, and in all sorts of ways. So the key, again, is to, to cultivate that non-judgmental curiosity and almost approach it in a very friendly way, as, as if you were learning something very positive, right? This is just reality. Um, and so I think he was exemplifying the, the teachings through how he was interacting with us both. Do you believe it was important for the child, and in general, for uh, clients of you to know more that they are not alone in their suffering, that Suffering is something that you as a therapist or others have experienced as well. What do you feel like is the importance about that? Because that's not necessarily what you're taught in 
psychotherapy school to talk about yourself, but obviously in this regard, it was very helpful. Yeah, I, I think this is a critically important issue. Uh, most, most people who go into therapy feel a tremendous amount of shame, humiliation about what they've been through, even if it's not apparent. Um, and, and we are in a world, I would say there are very few cultures that aren't pain averse, and so as a clinician, and I, I self-identify as a relational analyst, and so in my training, even in my, my analytic training, I was encouraged to meet the patient as a fellow traveler, not to, not to take the space and the time to talk about my own problems, because the patient is, is privileged, right? The, the treatment is for the patient, but to find ways to convey that I, too, uh, am a, a fellow suffering being who, who knows what it's like to be confused and not have all the answers and not always be prepared for what's happening. Mm -hmm. And in that way, to normalize suffering, to, to take some of the, the sting of shame out of it. And, and I think you're alluding to how, um, I think this is true of all religious traditions, but I have found this very powerfully in Buddhism. There's, there's almost uh, a reverence for, for how human it is to suffer. Mm -hmm. And the idea is to, to learn to respond to that suffering with real compassion, real sensitivity. And, and I think the, the most skillful therapists do find a way to convey that compassion in part because they have, they have lived the suffering too. And what is the shame really about? If the heart is wounded, why do we feel shame about our own suffering, our own woundedness? Yeah, there, there are different perspectives on, on shame. My, my sense is that so often our, our most entrenched forms of suffering um, that, that arise early in life come from a feeling of rupture or disconnection uh, with our caregivers. And in childhood, we're looking for ways to understand everything we go through. Right? We're trying to find some way to feel a sense of agency or a sense of control through that understanding. And so often we end up taking on right, what, what Fairbairn and other analysts call the burden of badness. That if, if our caregiver can't seem to know what we're feeling or can't seem to understand who we really are, it must be because there's something fundamentally deficient or problematic about us, mm -hmm. right? And, and while that's a painful belief, it also provides a sense of control. And it generates tremendous shame. So basically, it, it gives the relief of understanding because on some level, you can make sense out of that what doesn't make sense. That, for example, you get neglected or abused. And on the other hand, it just carries the burden of shame. But then later in life, you know, mm -hmm. when we think about how now it's a stigma to be vulnerable, to have a problem longer than 24 hours that we want to hide. It's, uh, you know, in our society, you have to be strong and you have to be resilient and you have to be young and vibrant and, of course, positive and happy on top of it. So 
any kind of suffering brings up shame maybe also because it's a sense of not fitting into the expectations of how we are supposed to be. Do you encounter that as well? Yeah, I, I think you're describing so well the, the shadow of any fiercely individualistic culture, mm-hmm. right? Where, where we come to feel that we're, we are solely responsible for what happens. And therefore, if, if we're going through something painful or difficult, we are solely responsible, right? We feel terribly. And we also feel that we should be able to fix it on our own. And in more communal cultures, there's a little more sense of, of needing others, needing to depend on others. And, and this is a central theme of, of religious life, I would say, in all religious traditions, that we really do need each other in order to heal, in order to, to feel well and feel cared for, feel that we're someone who deserves that care. Mm. Um, so, so like in more communal cultures, there is not so much the idea of you should never be the victim. You should never play the victim role because that is something that's not acceptable. And maybe it's okay to admit that you are hurt, that you're wounded and powerless in communal cultures. Well, in, in many communal cultures, there, there certainly is a great deal of shame and, and, um, efforts to camouflage personal suffering. But I think in individualistic cultures, personal problems become more problematic. Uh, again, because there is this feeling that it's up to me alone to, to make it go away. Mm-hmm. Right? That, that I should be able to take care of it and I should be able to have all the good stuff and the good life and if, if I'm suffering, especially in any chronic way, that must mean that there's something inherently wrong with me. Whereas in communal cultures, the feeling is there must be something inherently wrong with the world. So it's, it's a very different feeling uh, in response to suffering. So what is a communal culture, for example? Many, many Asian cultures, many African cultures... Uh, the, the family unit is privileged over the individual family member. And so children grow up feeling more of a sense of a, a we-go versus an ego. They, they exist insofar as they are part of the group. Whereas Western cultures are more individualistic cultures? Yes, yes. And, and in most Western cultures, and this is a generalization, but there's some truth to it, Children are raised to, to cultivate more independence and earlier in life. And while there can be some good to that, there can be some freedom and a sense of agency and initiative, it's also a real setup. Uh, and there's a lot, of, a lot of literature here around depression and, and rather young children. As soon as they, they go to school and they start to struggle, they have any academic difficulties or social difficulties, uh, they're extremely vulnerable to feeling that there's something inherently wrong with them. Mm. And do you have a feeling that uh, this tendency of the individual individualistic culture to just really focus more on the individual is getting worse in the last you know, 20, 30 years? Is there less of a sense of, family unit? Is there more an emphasis on 
you need to set your mark. You need to, when you're in kindergarten, find out what you become when you're grown up. You need to fend for your life. This whole idea also of competition and winning and losing. Is that something that you observed as becoming more extreme and maybe also one reason why we are as a society more anxious, feeling more lost? Mm -hmm. Well, I, I would say yes, certainly in the United States. Uh, that and and I know we're we're suffering this collectively right now. It it feels as though the primary value is is one of of greed. It's seeking gratification for oneself, mm -hmm. and many people hoped that 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 was being actively challenged. Uh, not to introduce politics too directly into this conversation, but during the Obama administration, I think there was some hope that appreciation for uh, the community might might grow, and that children would be uh, exposed to that value of wanting to nurture community, wanting to nurture relationship, to give, to support, and. As a Buddhist, I would suggest that when we become more other-centric, we're happier. We, we feel more connected and we feel less chronically worried about ourselves, less, less paranoid, less anxious, as you say. Mm. Uh, but I do see a trend now, and many of us see it in a stark way, of, of that, that culture of, of greed and, and self-seeking. When we come back, we'll talk more about this, also about that fear that drives certainly the, the sense of having to rather defend yourself than having a we consciousness. And we talk about innocence. How does innocence play a role in the healing? And can, once you lost your innocence, can you ever recapture it again? Right back. Welcome back to Empowerment Radio. I'm here with my guest, Dr. Pilar Jennings, and we talk about the wounded heart and how spirituality and psychotherapy together can help you to overcome the woundedness. And we talked before about the individualistic uh, societies and they are the communal oriented societies. And in general, that maybe as human beings, we are happier and more fulfilled when we have more a sense of we and compassion and connection than fending for ourselves. But fear is certainly something that drives us, in our culture at least, more into the what's in it for me. How can I make sure I'm okay versus looking for others? Would you agree? Yes, I, uh, I see fear as a prevalent feeling and, and certainly in the, the culture that I grew up in. Um, and interestingly, the other night I had the, the lovely opportunity to spend some time with Sharon Salzberg, who's a, a wonderful meditation teacher. And she was suggesting that loving kindness is a powerful antidote to fear. Mm. And it made a lot of sense to me because when, when we cultivate more compassion. Let me just stop for a second. Oh, no, it's good. <laughs> Thank you. Are we hearing the, the uh, horn? Yes, no, it's good. Okay. Um, Love when, yeah. 
When we cultivate more compassion for ourselves, certainly, and for others, it tends to dramatically soften fear. Right? Fear is it's a, a danger signal that, that there is an imminent threat, that there's something that, that could endanger us. And, and when we cultivate that feeling of caring in a very tender, genuine way for our own suffering and for the suffering of others, it, it almost creates an inner feeling of, of holding, mm-hmm. of some kind of a psychic safety net that's there to, to just support whatever might be happening. Without it, there, there's a strong feeling of fear blending, taking over the whole psyche. But isn't it true that when you have a wounded heart, if you have been hurt, if you do feel protected and guarded, that it's much easier to play it safe than to open up again, to let others in, to even care about others. And isn't it also true that when we think about the guardedness of the heart, it's not only that we are guarding it towards maybe others that once again can hurt us, but also towards our own feelings that we don't want to necessarily acknowledge or be aware of all that vulnerability, all that pain that we are still carrying around. And and how do you, with your teachings, help people to make the bridge to care about others, open the heart and feel safe? That's the real challenge. That, that, I would say, is the the primary challenge that that therapists encounter. And you're exactly right that if anyone has been badly hurt, especially in childhood, when we're most vulnerable, um, we're going to develop what I would call protector parts or, or defenses because we need them, right? When, when we're young, we are in the business of surviving, And so the psyche will cultivate whatever is needed in order to survive the pain and the suffering that that a child's encountering. And so those those protective responses start out with a really good intention. But over time, they tend to mitigate against getting what's most needed. So a child might learn to uh, not expose any need right? If they've learned early in life that um, expressing a need elicits a shaming response or anger or no response, which is also very shaming, they, they learn early in life to try to meet their own needs and then present as if they don't have any. But that's a real setup for feeling very isolated and also beginning to feel that people don't notice People don't seem to, to be aware that I'm a person too. I have feelings and needs too. And so the, the work in therapy, which is really bolstered, I, I would say, by Buddhist spirituality, is to first notice those, those protector parts. First, really appreciate why they have been necessary. And even come to respect them but then slowly, slowly help those defenses, help those protective responses not have to work so hard. Take a little bit of a a break, a vacation, not disappear, 
right? Because the psyche would feel too unsafe without them. But to become a little bit more relaxed so that people can get to know us better, see us more fully. And do you, in that regard, also see that those parts of us that are the most tentative and maybe the most eager to protect us are also the most sensitive and the most vulnerable. And turning vulnerability into the gift, for example, of expressing your needs, being aware of what actually is your gift, and rather than seeing vulnerability or sensitivity just as a self-defense, picking up what other people are about versus feeling what you are about. Is that also something that Buddhist uh, teachings, for example, highlights? Yeah, this is such a poignant issue because you're exactly right. It, it's, it's the tender parts of us that tend to be most lovable, right? That, that actually elicit a, a genuinely compassionate, curious response in others. And in the same way, many people, not all people, but many people, when, when we see a baby or a little child, <sighs> right, even the, the crustiest person can really respond with a lot of softness and a lot of tenderness. I, I would suggest, though, that the protector parts are, are not, not the tender parts, right? Those are the parts that function like a guard. They're on the lookout for, for danger or for any response that could be painful or for the threat of exposing the tenderness. The tender parts tend to be really well hidden. The more we've suffered, and especially early in life, the more they tend to duck and cover. And so in, in Buddhism and in psychotherapy, the idea is to first really get to know that, that inner landscape, really begin to, to be curious about those vulnerable parts of ourselves that are there, because I believe they exist in us all, but might be hiding out and might need some reassurance that they can be more safely exposed. Not right, not without discernment, because not every relationship has the room, the space for that tenderness to, to come forward. But many relationships will allow for those tender parts. And, and when they become a little bit more, more exposed, our relationships tend to be much more fulfilling. We tend to feel much more connected in a heart-centric way, in a genuine human way. Mm. And do you feel that, um, you know, the, the innocence that I talked about before, this being able to look at life more with a fresh mind again, through the eyes of the child, seeing the magic and the beauty and things, is that something we can recapture? And is there something that you can suggest to the listeners they can already start doing to maybe connect to their inner landscape and just be open and curious to discover those tender parts of them? Yeah, I, I, I love that image of the, the fresh eyes of the child. And, and in Zen Buddhism, there's a reference to beginner's mind and cultivating that beginner's mind throughout life. And Winnicott, who's a great British psychoanalyst and psychiatrist, talked about the fresh eyes of a child. 
And when we, when we build more trust in ourselves and in others, so when we build trust in relationship between self and other that is safe enough, then we can tap back into that beginner's mind, those fresh eyes. And optimally, we'll have a chance to experiment with someone who is safe enough, like a good therapist or a good spiritual mentor, someone who has real boundaries, someone who has real respect and appreciation and and delight in discovering who someone is. And then slowly, slowly, we can start to experiment, right? To, to play a little bit through that, that young part, through that innocent part. And I would encourage your, your viewers, your listeners, just to be curious about how their, their innocent parts need expression, I do, do they need to dance or do they need to laugh more or do they need to be able to joke around in a spontaneous, goofy way? But just, just to be curious about how that innocence might be expressed. Wonderful. Now, when we come back, I want to talk more about building trust because that is certainly a big issue for many people. Not only trust in oneself, trust in life, trust in others. And also talk more about practices that can help us to heal the heart, such as meditation, which is obviously a big aspect of Buddhism. So stay tuned. We will be right back. Welcome back to Empowerment Radio. Just before the break, we talked about trust. And how can we build trust? Build trust when the heart already is guarded because underneath there is a wound that hasn't been able to heal. So what would you say about trust? And what is trust in your mind? Because trust doesn't equal control. What does trust actually mean? Mm-hmm. Trust, in my, my personal experience and in my clinical experience, has a lot to do with our, our earliest Uh, experience of relationship. And so there's a strong correlation between trust and attachment, what we experienced with our primary caregivers. And as we know from attachment theory, some babies experience their their primary caregiver as very attuned, very available emotionally and physically to respond to what a baby is feeling and needing. And many caregivers, uh, through no fault of their own, simply because they're coping with many difficult circumstances or or their own unworked-through trauma history, um, respond in an erratic way. Sometimes they might be attuned and, and kind and affectionate, and sometimes they might be very anxious or irritable or, or disengaged. And some caregivers are pretty consistently... Uh, not attuned, right? not responding to a, a baby or a young child's signals of distress, right? signal that they need care. And when this happens, our trust that, that people can know what we feel tends to erode, right? Because again, we have to find a way to survive 
And if it feels too risky to trust, to trust that people will notice what we're feeling and needing and respond skillfully, then we have to find other ways to, to cope. So if we're, if we're adults and aware that we're carrying pain and suffering that, that feels very alive, it's, it's affecting us, it's affecting how we're living, then usually what's needed is, is a new experience of relationship that is trustworthy, right? To, to allow for a sense that other people can be trusted when we're most vulnerable, that other people have the ability to notice what we're feeling and needing. Yeah. And that is something that I find uh, quite helpful just to have this awareness that trust can be built and doesn't have to be created early on in our lives. And if it's not there, well, tough, then you will never have trust. You can actually rebuild it. And, and for many of my clients, it's, a, it's an awakening to be able to shift their expectation from being, again, hurt, disappointed, neglected, ignored, to focusing on those instances where actually people did show that what they always wanted, kindness, compassion, support. Mm -hmm. But it's almost, you know, we are filtering it out of our mind. We are not seeing those things because we're not expecting them. They're not fitting necessarily into our idea, our concept of life. But what I wonder about your spiritual approach, trust mm -hmm. in whatever you want to call it, the universe, is that something also that you are helping people with? And how do you do it if you do it? Well, I have been deeply influenced by the Buddhist teachings of um, deep compassion um, and, and also that, that heart that can stay open and respond with, with tenderness. And in Buddhism, there are all sorts of methods, all sorts of meditations for cultivating that ability. And what I found, especially when I was younger, is that as I was learning those, those compassion methods, I was starting to feel a, a more natural upwelling of tenderness in response to my own suffering. And that was then helping me stay more open in response to other people's suffering. So I, I do think it's really helpful to start with oneself. Mm -hmm. right, to find to find ways to to cultivate both to soften an inner critic because many people will will develop a, a Freud called a harsh superego right the part that says you just didn't get the good the good parents uh, now you have problems tough <laughs> right you, you better deal with it mm -hmm. to soften that response <clears throat> and then build up that tenderness. The more we can do that internally, the better we'll be able to notice when other people are actually wanting to learn about us, hear more from us. But if, if we're not able to cultivate that inner relationship, it becomes very hard to notice when other people genuinely want to get to know us better. It's very interesting that you say this because I believe you're absolutely right. But I see people sometimes trying to avoid the step of self and the step of others and go right to the step of spirituality as yes. the 
saving ground. Now, Buddhism doesn't talk about a god or benevolent force or anything like that. So is Buddhism for those that feel like life doesn't make sense? No one is looking out for me. There is not even any kind of spiritual entity there that's going to help me. Is Buddhism for those people a comfort or does Buddhism offer not so much in that regard? I know what you mean. It can seem that in the Buddha Dharma, there's too much emphasis on on one's own efforts. In a way, it can sound very individualistic. <laughs> um, but interestingly, the Buddha the Buddha suggested that in order to feel well, in order to really feel held, we we do need the support, the active support of people who care for us. So it, it can seem as though the, the emphasis is on our own individual efforts to heal in Buddhism, um, but there really is uh, an appreciation in Buddhist spirituality for how much we need others in order to heal. And the historical Buddha talked about the need to take refuge in spiritual teachers and in teachings and in community. And in this way, I think he was a, a very sophisticated psychologist to realize that we're, we're relational beings. We really do need other people to help us recognize what's possible within ourselves. When, when we're children, we need adults who can model um, all sorts of capacities. And if we don't find those adults when we're young, we can find them later in life. And there is always the opportunity to heal because the psyche is so dynamic. We, we are always changing and we are always capable of changing. And this is actually a, a central theme in Buddhist spirituality, one of impermanence. Right. And that is one question I wanted to ask you. And we are already almost at the end, unfortunately. But give us a few thoughts on loss. Mm. Loss is a big issue for the wounded heart. And how do your teaching and, and Buddha, Buddhism teach about how to see loss in a more healing way? Mm -hmm. Loss affects us so profoundly. And of course, not all losses are the same. Some losses happen very gradually so that there's more time for for the mind and the heart to, to get ready. Other losses can be extremely shocking. And often it's in response to those shocking losses that we develop those protective responses that say, never again. I will never let myself be in a situation where I might suffer that shock again. So in Buddhism, the idea is first, Again, just to appreciate that this is a very human experience, right? There, there is nothing shameful about loss. It, it is just the nature of being human to experience it. We, we get so attached. We love so fiercely. And when we lose people we love, it affects us in the most profound way. So simply just allowing for that reality can open up the possibility of wanting to tend to the pain and the suffering with more patience, uh, more respect. 
and maybe slowly with with more understanding that um, we are vulnerable. Mm-hmm. We might suffer more loss even after we have done all of the good and the hard work to heal. But if if we're really taking care of ourselves emotionally, spiritually, by having support, by having mentors and community, then we will be able to work through and navigate those losses. It, it probably won't be easy, but it will be possible to do it and to keep the heart open. You know, I want to quote your book, uh, which I just think this is a wonderful paragraph. It says, it is easy to get stuck in anger or despair instead of feeling these emotions as a gateway to the more tender vulnerability that lies beneath. This is especially true if we are reminded of early experiences of loss, rejection, traumas that precipitated psychic free-for-alls with no end. But as I'm learning that we are, the very protection also takes with us, with it, our most genuine capacity for well-being and most importantly, for loving and being loved. And I believe that is just such a call to really focus on the healing of whatever we are protecting ourselves from and in this way not lose our human ability and not only human animals can love too, but there is just this beautiful uh, purpose in itself to be of service through compassion and love that we are uh, on, on many levels simply forgoing and ignoring when we are staying in that self-protection that the wounded heart often requires us to be in. So I invite everyone who listened to read your book. How can they find out more about it? Where do they find more about you and your work? Thank you. Yes, uh, people can find me through my site, uh, which is uh, drpilarjennings.com. That's drpilarjennings.com. With one L. Uh, Yes, correct. One L. And there they can also get the book and they can order it, I'm sure, or Amazon. Online through Amazon. Mm-hmm. Well, it was wonderful speaking with you. Thank you so much for your work. Thank you so much for bringing a, a new perspective and psychotherapy on, on the marriage of Buddhism and psychotherapy, which I believe has and will continue to inspire and help many people. Is there a final word that you want to leave our audience with? Well, I, I would just encourage your, your listeners to stay, stay curious about their, their own experience, um, that everything we live through is worth knowing about, and it's, it's worth finding ways to work through in the spirit of, of feeling well and living as fully uh, and, and as safely as possible. Thank you very much. Well, until next time, this was another hour of Empowerment Radio. Thank you for tuning in. Thank you for being curious about yourself. And we will talk and listen soon again. Take care. Bye. You've been listening to Empowerment Radio with Dr. Friedemann Schaub. Join Dr. Friedemann the first and third Wednesday each month at 11 a.m. Pacific as he addresses some of the most prevailing challenges of our daily lives. Discover how you can use the power of your mind to overcome stress, anxiety, and overwhelm and create a solid foundation of confidence and self-esteem. 
Learn cutting-edge tools so that you can approach every day with great ease, joy, and purpose. To learn more about what Dr. Schaub can do for you, visit the fearandanxietysolution.com. 